Land, Water, Wildlife, a podcast produced by the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, connecting you to nature. Thanks for listening to the eighth episode of our podcast. Our conversation today is about red tide, which historically blooms offshore late summer or early fall in Southwest Florida. I'm Barbara Lindstrom, Communications Director for the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, better known as SCCF, which was founded in 1967 by islanders who had a vision to preserve the amazing environment on our islands. As a grassroots organization, we're producing this podcast on our phones using a free digital platform so that we can cost-effectively bring you conversations about the work we do to conserve and protect the coastal habitats and aquatic resources on Sanibel and Captiva and in the surrounding watershed. Today, we're joined by the first time by scientists from our marine lab, which was established in 2002 with a focus to understand the relationships between freshwater, estuarine, and marine systems within the Caloosahatchee watershed. Both scientists joining us today have PhDs and extensive backgrounds in regional water quality research. Dr. Eric Milbrandt has served as director since 2011 after joining the Marine Lab as a research scientist in 2003. He specializes in mangrove and oyster restoration and has specific interests in the benthic aspect of marine ecology. Welcome, Eric. Thanks. We're also joined by Dr. Rick Bartelson, who joined the lab in 2006. Rick is a water quality scientist and specializes in the ecosystem role of seagrass beds. Welcome to the podcast, Rick. Thank you, Barbara. All right. So it's good to have representation from the Marine Lab. Um, I'm sure there are many conversations we could have, but today our focus is on red tide. It's the time of year that red tide typically blooms offshore, so we thought it would be a good chance to have a conversation to help us all better understand what we can expect. Um, let's start with what we know for certain about red tide. Eric, what's the basic organism that we're talking about? So the red tide is an algae bloom that forms when you have an abundance of one type of phytoplankton, one species of phytoplankton called Karenia brevis. Karenia brevis is a dinoflagellate. It does photosynthesis just like plants, um, has the ability to swim and migrate vertically in the water column. So it can bask in the sun in, during the day and swim down uh, to the bottom of the ocean at, at, at night and pick up nutrients. Um, it is very flexible in that it can use a variety of different nitrogen species and can eat bacteria and other picoplankton to maintain uh, its population and will initiate um, bloom uh, typically offshore um, and which is then steered by ocean currents to the coast uh, during a maintenance phase, which can uh, then grow to be very large in, in scale and size. And then it has a termination phase where it um, will sink or become introduced to water that's lower than 
26 parts per thousand salinity. So we, we don't know uh, very much about termination. Uh, we know a little bit more about maintenance and uh, feel like we, we know some about the bloom initiation. Although red tide blooms, the area, the target area that we're talking about is a very large part of the Eastern Gulf of Mexico. Oh. Uh, so our observations have largely been limited to the beach and to the coastal areas. Hmm. That's very interesting. So the most recent Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission sampling uh, does show background concentrations present at three sites offshore in Sarasota County and one off um, Charlotte County right now. So uh, in terms of this initiation, Rick, why do blooms originate offshore? Well, yeah, first we, we are seeing a little bit of background concentrations out there doesn't doesn't necessarily mean there's a bloom getting started. Hmm. Uh, but but the, that's a good question about why they initiate offshore. When offshore, the, it, near the bottom, the water is pretty calm uh, compared to near shore where the wave action can reach the bottom. And th that calm water is essential for bloom concentrations to, to build up. If, if there's water motion or currents that will disperse any uh, start start to a bloom. So uh, what do you think triggers the bloom at this time of year, Eric? Well, this time of year, the, the Gulf of Mexico is quite warm um, there. So the, the, these types of algae are temperature dependent as well as de depend on sunlight and nutrients. So the warmer it is, uh, the faster they can divide and the greater abundances uh, that can be found in a, in a milliliter of water. But uh, there's also a lack of uh, large cold fronts, um, which typify the, uh, the cooler months of, of the year uh, on land in Florida. Those, those cold fronts, um, when they come through, they mix the water column, they introduce a lot of uh, colder temperatures, uh, and they, they also can uh, dissipate any blooms uh, that, that occur. So this, this time of year, um, the predominant wind direction uh, is mostly south and east, and, and the ocean currents are such um, that um, the, 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 the bloom formation is, is op optimal. Um, and it, it really kind of depends on the position of, a, of, of where the Florida loop current is and the amount of upwelling that, that's occurring. And upwelling is a, is a phenomenon where you have water that's from deeper in the ocean that's colder and, and hasn't been exposed to other organisms and phytoplankton and, and sunlight. It comes to the shallower waters and is then uh, a source of, of nitrogen and, and phosphorus. Hmm. So with background concentrations showing up now, um, Rick, you, you mentioned that, that that doesn't indicate that there is a, a offshore bloom? What? Right. It, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's just normal. Background just means what's, what you find all year round. And 
it doesn't necessarily mean there's a bloom anywhere. Hmm. So what would, how would we know that there is a bloom offshore? What would be the indicator of that, Rick? Well, well, FWC and I think NOAA both do sampling offshore and they, so they have a year round program where they'll get samples offshore. We, Lee County has a sampling program weekly on the, the beaches of Sanibel and Captiva, or Lee County beaches. Uh, so they, they would uh, detect it if, if it's hanging around the beaches during the week. But we don't usually start sampling, at least I don't, until we start seeing signs of, of a bloom, like we smell the, smell the, the uh, brevitoxin in the air, we get the effects in our throat or or someone starts uh, noticing it, the sampling for it on a monitoring basis. So you haven't started sampling for it this year already, Rick? Well, I, I look at samples every week, but I don't uh, don't usually see any, any red tide cells in my samples until we, other people do. Uh, occasionally, I'll be the first one or will be the first one to see it, but we have volunteers that would call in about it or the sea turtle program would would smell it or something but we, we generally don't start sampling until till it starts showing up okay so since you started at the lab in 2003 eric would you say that red tide has worsened or is it just a typical fall event well um I've seen um, every fall there seems to be an event in South Florida, Southwest Florida. Um, in 57 of the last 66 years, uh, there's been some kind of event. Now, you have to understand the events can vary from being a very small patch detected um, in, in a few samples to uh, a phenomenon that covers the whole coast, the whole West Florida Shelf, which is 200 miles wide from Tampa Bay to the Florida Keys. Um, so while a bloom can occur almost every year, um, what, what we've seen is after major um, discharge events related to hurricane landfalls, um, there's been super blooms is what they're called, which are very large magnitude, very intense uh, as far as, you know, high uh, concentrations of cells. And that occurred in 2005, so shortly after I started at SCCF, and again in 2018. And 2005, of course, well, for those of you who, who don't remember, we had a, a major um, Category 4 hurricane make landfall, Hurricane Charlie. And then that same year, we had other hurricanes, Francis and Jean, um, and, and then Rita and Katrina were um, affected the, the peninsular Florida. And then in 2017, we had a major hurricane, Category 4, Hurricane Irma, uh, make landfall at Marco Island and, and dump so much water on the peninsula that there was a 90 days of, of 10,000 CFS, which is almost... Uh, uh, 10 times more water uh, than is ecologically um, really acceptable for the estuary. So 
we, we can't, because nutrients are so variable in time and space, there's not a real good connection between that, that flux or that movement of fresh water over the land and into the Gulf of Mexico with these blooms. But it does seem to be, uh, uh, the super blooms do seem to occur after major um, hurricanes. So you're referring to um, after Charlie in 2004 and all those hurricanes, then it was in the in 2005 that we had bloom, super bloom. Yes. And then and the, the enduring uh, long red tide after Irma that went from 2017 into 2018, right? Yeah, it was, it was actually, that's what, one of the things that we're now sort of characterizing as the super bloom is that it'll, it'll start, it'll be sort of first discovered, if you will, um, in the fall uh, sometime, and then it'll continue until the next summer and be, um, even worse the next year as temperatures increase. Mm. So we're going into this fall, um, clear of red tide. So we've got that going for us. Um, so Rick, the weekly, uh, condition reports that you do with other scientists in our region, always include a link to the FWC's web website and red tide status. And they also include a list of patients at Crow or the Clinic for the Rehabilitation of Wildlife here on Sanibel. Uh, the reports in August of 2020 listed a total of 11 patients with red tide symptoms from pelicans to skimmers, gulls, cormorants, um, and an ibis. Uh, do you often see a correlation between an increase in red tide patients and blooms? Yes, they, if there is a, a bloom, the red tide patients, the, the uh, birds that, that are exhibiting symptoms of brevitoxicosis, uh, neurological symptoms, the, those, those, the number of those patients will obviously increase. The, we often, or Crow often sees more patients or an increase in patients before we start seeing a red tide. And that's that's sort of what you're implying. I think the the birds are are eating fish that might be feeding down in the lower layer of the water column where the satellite doesn't see the red tide. Uh, the anyway that but also the brevitoxin from past blooms hangs around in in the system and can be accumulated by the food web and be passed on to to birds and that that's. I don't know if Crow has ever started seeing a decrease, a, a real zeroing out of patients after the 2018 bloom. Yeah, I noticed there weren't any in July, but back in June, there still were a few red tide patients. So, um, but that's something you keep an eye on with those reports. Right. And if, if, if they see a, a sudden in, uh, uptick, that, that could spur us to start looking around for, for red tide. Hmm. So last year, um, I started at SCCF in October, and uh, you guys were already um, sampling and finding some medium, con medium concentrations of Carinia brevis uh, at beaches on Sanibel. And um, concentrations got really high up until November. Um, 
And then it was really hard to know what to expect, whether it was just a typical fall event or if it was going to continue. So can you explain, Eric, um, why it's so hard to forecast and, and predict and, you know, know what's going to happen with, with red tide? Well, the, the ocean currents are largely responsible for steering the, the, the bloom around, even though these microscopic uh, dinoflagellates can, can migrate, they can swim, so to speak, with their flagella, it's really the, the currents in the ocean that uh, dictate where the bloom is going to be. And, and much like hurricane forecasting, the, the intensity forecasting is not nearly as good as um, our ability to predict where it might go. So um, we can generally, from really good physical oceanographic models that are three-dimensional and that have you know, hourly to, to three-hour time steps, um, you can know if it's going to go north or south or if it's going to get closer to shore or further away. But when it interacts with the coast, um, the, the, it's not an obvious intensification automatically. Um, you can have uh, certainly plenty of nutrient flux or movement of nutrients and water uh, into that coastal zone. But the um, the, the other things can use it. And Karenia has this amazing ability to use uh, many different forms of nitrogen from different sources, whether it's from um, water seeping out of the sea floor, whether it's from the estuary itself, from dead fish as it um, releases uh, toxin or, or interacts with uh, filter feeders. Um, and so our ability to uh, predict where it goes is, is partially dependent on our ability to sample more frequently. And um, most of our sampling, as I mentioned before, is from, from the beach because of, um, you know, just the vastness of the space that uh, the red tide could be blooming and, and our ability to detect it from satellites is, is excellent when there's clear skies, no clouds, and the bloom is at the surface in the in the photic zone um, if as rick mentioned sometimes the the bloom is um, stuck if you will uh, underneath uh, two separate layers of water where the the layer of water on the surface is less dense than the than the uh, water underneath and so it's not then visible from uh, from satellite imagery hmm. So that makes it uh, more difficult. It uh, makes it um, kind of stealth in a way, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's it's hard to it's hard to observe and monitor the entire eastern Gulf of Mexico um, in, in a way that we we would like to do, like we can from for atmospheric weather patterns. So while late summer and early fall may be um, the time that blooms typically occur offshore, it seems like it's a little later, like maybe more like October or November, especially that we do see them inshore here at San on Sanibel and Captiva. Uh, would you say that's your experience, Rick? Well, yeah. So 
that's the normal time. The uh, sometimes we start seeing them offshore and they start working their way towards us. Uh, you can usually see them on the satellite image that way. But some some years they they just the blooms uh, sneak up on us under the radar. In, in 2006 was in May the bloom started showing up. So it's it's variable. Huh. And that was one in 2006 you discovered it onshore in May right right on hmm. the right on the beach like Tarpon Beach wow um so what can you tell us about uh um during the 2018 red tide uh there was what you refer to as a dead zone off Sanibel what can you tell us about its impact on red tide blooms rick well, we we don't know if that will what what the dead zone does or what happens is there's no oxygen in the lower layer of the water column or not not enough oxygen for for animals and even plants to survive. There's also hydrogen sulfide and toxins produced as the, as uh, decomposition takes the oxygen out of the water. So so it kills a lot of what's down in on the bottom and in the lower layer of the water column and that that killing everything down there might might affect the number of of red tide cells there are to start future blooms for for a while so we, hmm. we could have last year had a had less of a bloom because there was less of a starter population of of Karenia. but we hmm. as far as i know nobody's sampled the lower layer of the water to 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 tell if that's the case. It, it takes a lot of sampling to determine those things. And that's pretty deep down that you're referring to. Well, in the lower layer b below, uh, yeah, 10 feet down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You'd have to get some dive gear for that, Rick. Mm -hmm. You can send, send a, a sampling device down there oh. that you don't need it to dive down there. Oh, okay. Um, so, Eric, what other research is the lab doing to better understand red tide and how they might be, red tides might be connected to discharges from Lake Okeechobee, as uh, many people speculate? Well, there's a lot of, of area in the estuary that is not monitored. We have great uh, statewide monitoring that's conducted by FWRI at the beaches, as as Rick mentioned, and they've they've actually stepped up their offshore program this year as well. I'm seeing a lot more dots on the map where they're collecting water samples. And in fact, when we were out collecting um, last week, we we oh, we crossed paths with a vessel from the Moat Marine Lab, which was in our area uh, collecting samples. But what, what we're really trying to do in the estuary, there's not a comprehensive monitoring program. The, the red tide um, monitoring, because Karenia, this dinoflagellate, doesn't tolerate salinities less than about 26 uh, parts per thousand, um, the estuary is considered not a place where Karenia uh, could go. But the area between Lake Okeechobee and the Gulf of Mexico is where I'm talking about. And there are, um, there are blooms that occur and harmful algae blooms that occur in, in the estuary, including the, from the freshwater 
um, cyanobacteria blooms to the, the low salinity waters. So um, one thing that uh, we're trying to address is to look at the, the discharges from the lake, the, the contribution from our watershed, which is a significant amount of fresh water and nutrients, mm-hmm. and how the, the really bioreactor of the estuary is converting uh, nitrogen loading to, into cells, phytoplankton blooms, et cetera, that then terminate in the estuary and, and are transported down to the Gulf of Mexico and out. Um, and that, that, uh, that, that whole process um, is, um, is yielded some interesting insights as, in, as, as far as the Gulf of Mexico goes, that there's almost always, as Rick could tell you, there's almost always a, a bloom occurring um, in, in the estuary. It moves around depending on how much flow there is. And, and also when we were sampling in the near shore Gulf of Mexico, uh, we don't know if it's related to the dead zone or not, but there's persistent levels of ammonium that were higher in the Gulf than, than they were in uh, around Sanibel on the bay side of Sanibel Island. So the Crania prefers uh, ammonium. So um, while these, these connections um, are not, uh, they're not, they're, they're hypothetical connections, um, we're, we're working on them. It, it sounds like there's a lot of uh, layers, literally, to understanding uh, Karenia. And, and well, I think, I think Karenia, a, a, as it interacts with the shallow waters and, and the beaches, I mean, it, and of course, um, we haven't talked yet about it at all, but it affects people in a way that other blooms don't because it aerosolizes and it causes uh, irritation. It causes massive, can cause massive death of, of sea turtles and, and dolphins and so on. But the interaction of, of the Karenia with the coast is, is poorly understood despite 50 years of research. Hmm. Well, speaking of uh, loss of marine life, um, during the summer of 2018, we experienced an absolutely catastrophic red tide um, when it came to the death of marine life. Um, more than 240 strandings of sea turtles uh, resulted. And uh, Rick, um, you're doing research to try to understand how, how the deaths of m- the majority of those turtles were connected to red tide, right? Well, yes, we we had a grant from or Kelly Sloan, the director of the sea turtle program, and I had a grant from NOAA to look for toxins, brevitoxins in the stomachs and in the in tissues of the sea turtles that year. And right, we got overloaded with with uh, samples. So we had over 250 turtles washed up on Sandville and Captiva. Uh, and we sampled a lot of uh, their gut contents and tissues and found uh, high amounts of brevitoxin in, in their stomach or uh, intestinal tract, as well as in their livers and in their muscle tissue. So they, they were all eating things that were contaminated with brevitoxin. The, a long time ago, people 
scientists thought that things like sea turtles and manatees and dolphins were, were getting sick when there's red tide by breathing in the, the aerosol toxins. But we, they, they all eat things that are uh, in the food web that are collecting uh, brevitoxin through, through uh, either filtering the red tide out and then retaining the brevitoxins or eating something something that eats something else that is full of brevitoxin like the predatory gastropods like conchs and whelks, hmm. which, which eat, eat clams. So moon snails are another one. We tested the toxins in a moon snail and the moon snails eat clams, which, which have filtered, often filtered the water and the moon snails were, were sky high in brevitoxins. So the, what's, we didn't have a, a lot of green turtles, but the green turtles we had that even just had seagrass in their guts were still full of brevitoxin. The seagrasses, seagrass beds filter the water and particles of, of uh, red tide fall, fall down into the sediments and the seagrasses get contaminated. And that can affect manatees too. So do you think um, we're doing some research this summer um, to try and see if there are lasting impacts of right. that red tide on the turtles, right? Right, yeah, that Kelly and uh, Andrew are working on a project that we're in, I'm helping them uh, find out if, if the maternal toxins of the sea turtles are transferred to the eggs. Oh, well, that should be interesting to see. Um, so um, what can people do, Eric, in their own backyard to help prevent this red tide? Well, we, um, we've passed a number of fertilizer ordinances to help reduce ammonium um, from coming off of your property to, to in, get into our waterways. Um, our understanding of, about uh, algae blooms is pretty good, actually. I mean, we can grow them. We, uh, we know a lot. There's algae blooms that happen around the world, and we know that nitrogen and phosphorus um, are a, a big part of the problem. Um, Karenia, it's a little more complicated, but as it um, moves close to the beaches and the coast, we, we um, know that it does need nitrogen and phosphorus. So anything you can do to reduce your um, nitrogen and phosphorus uh, uh, footprint via um, eating less uh, cows, uh, they produce a lot of, of nitrogen that goes into our waterways to uh, abiding by fertilizer ordinances or simply um, removing all of your non-native species and using native species that don't need fertilizers. Um, I think we need to adjust our idea of an ideal landscape to one that's not turf and palm trees and switch it to one that's Joe Woods and cabbage palms and um, more Florida friendly uh, landscapes. And of course, we need to protect our wetlands. Um, there's just every year the county is able to acquire uh, different properties that are available. Uh, most of these properties haven't been developed because they're too wet and, and wetlands uh, are important as even temporary wetlands and trapping nutrients. And what about um, 
septic systems, Rick, uh, is that part of the problem as well? As far as the nutrient source, yes, the mm -hmm. septic systems are, even if they're new and working right, they, they will leach uh, nitrogen in, into the groundwater, and then the groundwater is connected to the estuary through submarine uh, springs. So, so there's free exchange of groundwater from the septic tanks into the estuaries. So that's another thing people can do in their own backyard is if they have a septic system to, um, like on Captiva where they're dependent on septic system is to have it inspected to try to, you know, decrease the leaching. Is that? Well, hook, hooking up to uh, a city sewer is the best solution. I think Captiva is looking into that, right, Eric, to hooking up with uh, Sanibel potentially? Yes, they've been doing a number of feasibility studies to, um, to try and do that. And it's, it's pretty clear that their, their septic tanks um, have an impact on nutrient uh, release in, in you know, the groundwater and also the nearshore water. And, and that's not even considering some of the use uh, of the properties up there, if they are rental properties where you have um, large family groups uh, in a house that's really you know, calculated to only have like four people using the, the septic system. Wow. Instead, you, you know, you could have 20 people and it overloads it. So um, there's, a, there's some things that are happening in a positive way um, in Captiva to, to reduce the septic uh, tanks and move towards central sewer. Um, that's a, a bigger problem for Lee County and the, in the upper Caloosahatchee where most of the properties are still uh, remain on septic. And um, when we talk about impacts then that red tide has on, on humans um, in terms of the respiratory irritation uh, last year, you guys worked with the uh, with GCUS, the Gulf of Mexico Coastal Ocean Observing System, on a HABSCOPE initiative um, to provide a predictive model um, where people could uh, get some real time information about which beaches um, might be, you know, more irritating. Will we be participating in that again, Rick? Yes, we. When, whenever we start seeing red tide, that that program will become operative and people can go to a website and there's a little, little, little map with little dots on where we have sampling sites uh, that we sample weekly and their, their model hooks up to a meteorological model that, that can show the, the uh, amount of aerosol toxin that beach goers would expect at different beaches in for a few days into the future. Uh, so, so right, we'll be helping along with uh, Lee County is doing that, C School, uh, Collier County is participating and we're, we're getting more, more sites as, as they get more HAB scopes out to people. Okay. Um, but what we need red tide to be able to utilize that, don't we? Um, which uh, we, we may or may not see. Um, right. What do you think, Eric? Uh, what type of routine sampling will we be doing this fall? And 
Um, what are your expectations? Well, I think, um, you know, Rick provides a great service to the community when he um, collects samples and has volunteers bring water samples um, and counts them on the microscope. And, and he's, uh, he's going to continue that. Um, we're trying to collect water samples around Captiva. Um, so we, we do that every, every quarter. Um, and there's amazing phytoplankton diversity, which is uh, the, the things that cause algae blooms around Captiva. Um, so we're trying to better understand that transition to uh, uh, why it becomes dominated by one species of dinoflagellate. Um, but we're also, in addition to, to around Captiva, we, since the, uh, the dead zone uh, was discovered um, every quarter. We do collect water column DO and um, nutrients and and phytoplankton uh, from the Gulf of Mexico in a in a fairly extensive grid that goes really from the Sanibel Causeway to uh, North Captiva, out uh, about ten miles offshore, and um, we're using um, a combination of, of the microscope and a new tool that images the uh, particles in the water and um, to look for Karenia, but also to look at the diversity of phytoplankton. Hmm. Interesting. And then does recon help us understand um, what might be happening with red tide? So not exactly. Um, it will provide us with a base number for a, a the chlorophyll, which is like um, if you chop down a tree and weighed it, it would give you a number. Uh, so it gives you a number based on uh, a milliliter of water of how much of some something that is uh, is a phytoplankton, how much is there. But it doesn't tell you whether or not it's a dinoflagellate or uh, anything, any of the other. Uh, diversity of phytoplankton that's out there. So I think when I've, um, when we see in slow and steady increases in the chlorophyll, um, there, there tends to be a bloom, but it's not necessarily Karenia. Okay, and, and just for those of you who don't know, RECON is our um, River Estuary Coastal Observing Network that tracks changes in water quality from Lake Okeechobee. Um, and um, is available in real time for um, water quality data on an ongoing basis. Did I get that right? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's seven sites from the Franklin Lock to the Gulf of Mexico, and it records hourly. And, and anyone, if it's, it's designed for scientists, but anyone can can look at the data and plot um, over time what's going on. And how's our water quality right now, Rick, based on um, what, what you see? Well, it, water's looking pretty good. The, uh, we're not having any HABs uh, per se. The Lake Okeechobee discharges have been muted uh, they're having a cyanobacteria bloom in the lake, so that's good that we're not getting an inoculum from from the lake. But but we 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 just had a big 
in, influx of surficial water from the watershed and that that's always bad that's full of nutrients and particles and color or tannins so that's all bad for seagrasses and then and then we we're still seeing lag effects from the the uh, past blooms we're seeing a lot of macroalgae in a lot of areas and that's in the case of uh matlache pass a few weeks ago they had a large anoxic event Huh. Based because of the decomposing macroalgae up there, so so we're we're not we're, we're sort of in cycles from uh, from one bloom event to the next, where it's we're sort of always an ecosystem out of balance. That we are seeing some good signs of fish returning, uh, pinfish were in in uh, in huge numbers in a grass bed I was in the other day and. For for uh, a while after the 2018 uh, bloom, there wasn't a ripple on the water in Tarpon Bay for months. So we're we're seeing a lot of a lot of fish coming oh. back. Well, that's good. And and then just getting back to our, you know, the the basic question that we're trying to answer with this podcast: um, Do you think we will see red tide this fall? That's the tough question, isn't it? That's part of what it's is so hard about red tide, right? Well, I think we will see it, but we we as our community and may not even may not experience it at all. We may see it as a dot or two or more on a map. It may be mm-hmm. near Tampa, it may be near Naples, it may be near us and mm-hmm. um it may stay offshore. So it, it's impossible to avoid because it is a part of the West Florida shelf. It's been, um, it's happened for a long time and it seems to happen almost every year. It just, uh, it's, a, it's, it's usually quite isolated in terms of it's patchy and uh, it won't affect the whole state um, as it did in 2018. Well, and as you say, um whether or not we experience it and feel it um, on our beaches. We, we certainly um, hope we won't experience it this year, the respiratory irritation. It doesn't seem like red tide and COVID would mix very well. No. Right? No. Um, so uh, for those of you who are listening, we have resources on our website that um, can help you better understand Red Tide. You can click on water quality on the homepage and then Red Tide resources. Uh, there you will find daily status maps, um, the Habscope respiratory irritation forecast, NOAA's bloom forecast, fact sheets from the FWC, as well as frequently asked questions a spreadsheet showing the history of red tides documented in Southwest Florida and public health impacts from the CDC and the Florida Department of Health. Um, So thanks to both of you for taking the time to uh, talk about red tide and uh, for all the research you do to help protect our waters. Thank you, Barbara. Yes, thank you, Barbara. Yeah, good to have you on the podcast. We'll get you on here again. So thanks to all of you for listening to Land, Water, Wildlife, SCCF's podcast, Connecting You to Nature.